we fought My freshman year of college at the University of Wisconsin, 9-11 happened. And as it did for many men and women around the country, it galvanized us into a desire to serve. I said to myself, you know, it's time for you to kind of put your money where your mouth is and, and to join and go fight alongside everybody else. I enlisted as a, as a rifleman in the, uh, the Marine Infantry, and we were deployed with the surge to Iraq in 2007. So we went to the Anbar province. It was still a, a very nasty place to be. It was, a, it was a pretty rough deployment. A lot of people who come back from that situation, they, they always miss it just a little bit because it does create this sense of making everything around you that much more important. Everything becomes much more real. Life becomes much sweeter. Beer tastes all the better. Came back home in November 2008. At the end of my four years, I had all my fingers and all my toes. A lot of my friends hadn't been so lucky. I had a mother that... I owed it to, to get out because it was taking more years off her life than it was mine. So I came home. I started to apply to uh, graduate schools. And then in uh, January of last year, the earthquake hit Haiti. That sight there of those buildings crumbling. The images that are coming across the screen are just chaos. Screaming all over the place. A city that's full of dust and debris and people running and covered in dust. UN soldiers with those familiar Reports are coming out that there's mobs that are looting, waving machetes in the streets and burning tires, and kind of had this urge to go help. It just made sense. I looked at the scenes coming out of Port-au-Prince, and I said, it's really no different from Fallujah. I looked at my girlfriend, and I said, I think I should go down there. I come up with a lot of stupid ideas, and she normally swats them down, and I fully expected her to swat this one down because... You know, it was going to be crazy and it was going to be dangerous. But uh, without hesitation, she said, I think that's a good idea. It was pretty incredible. Started calling people that I knew. I made a deal with her that if I could get one or two guys that I trusted to go with me, that I would go. Because I wasn't crazy enough to go down by myself. I went on Facebook and said, I'm going to go to Haiti. I could use the help. And within minutes, uh, William McNulty, who's with me right now, called me up. And I said, Jake, I'm in. <laughs> he said he's in. Uh, I read that Facebook post, and so I said, uh, hey, man, I can do it. Shortly thereafter, a friend of mine called me up and said, you know, I'll buy everybody's plane tickets. And that's when it, this, I guess, dream, or this crazy idea really became a reality. About two days later, we left for the Dominican Republic. I jumped on a plane, uh, met Jake down in Santo Domingo. And the whole effort snowballed. About 16 hours after that, we were inside Port-au-Prince. Well, coming in from the border, you could start to see slowly the devastation. The closer and closer you got, the more destroyed everything around you was until finally you got into the heart of Port-au-Prince and it was just, it was, it was a big rubble pile, the whole thing. We basically struck a deal with the Jesuits prior to coming down that we could use their compound as a base of operations and then use our skills that we learned in the military, including uh, combat life-saving skills, and help plug ourselves in somewhere into this disaster response. And instead, for at least the first two days, it was just us and the Haitians, and we were in some of the worst uh, hit areas of Port-au-Prince. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was incredible. Camps that had 
literally hundreds of traumatic injuries and they had not yet seen a doctor. We're talking broken backs, broken legs, amputated limbs, limbs that had literally been shorn off with falling debris. And they had nothing but a gym sock wrapped around the end of around the end of it. That was really our welcome to Port-au-Prince moment when we walked into that first camp. Going into these refugee camps, what was remarkable to me was the way that we were received by these these people, these victims. You know, they were so happy to see you. And they were so calm considering the situation. As we were setting up to begin triaging them, they were triaging themselves. And that was just kind of mind-blowing. Realistically, we probably treated about 500 people that day. At least a few dozen amputated limbs. We had two broken backs, a broken hip. Uh, We delivered a baby. We stabilized the patient, and we did that by uh, making splints. And we made splints from everything from... um, Garage doors and (laughs) windowsills and sticks. I mean, anything we had, um, we we would tear it apart and, and, and make a splint out of it. We were trying to wash out our clothes with, uh, with some water at night, shower up with what we could out of buckets and you know, wash the, the filth and the, you know, the blood off. And we'd go to bed, we'd maybe drink some beers if we could find them and then uh, wake up the next morning and, and get at it again. The experiences you have in Iraq and Afghanistan, you've responded to suicide bombers, you've responded to mass casualty situations. I think that from our perspective, there's nobody that's better suited for that environment than a combat veteran. And not because of their ability to shoot or throw grenades or anything like that, but their ability to manage the chaos. And that's what the situation was down there. It was pure chaos, and veterans have great ability for time to kind of slow down for them for them to really pick out what the urgent needs and problems are to address. The long-term solution is going to lie with those Red Crosses and the International Medical Corps, and there's no doubt about that. But in that immediate aftermath, there was definitely a need for these small teams to get into these areas that were just overwhelmed with injuries. And once we were going out and not finding those injuries is when we said, okay, we packed up and we left Haiti. And so Jake and I, you know, and the rest of the team, we all sat down and you know, we just decided that I think we have something here. I think we have a model for something. We have over two million veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. The skills and experiences that they've had translate remarkably well to disaster zone. All the polls say that our veterans want to continue service in some capacity. They, they feel like they're almost useless. There's an obvious symbiotic relationship between the two and nobody's connecting these dots. The organization is called Team Rubicon. Our mission statement is very specific. We provide this first response capability in the immediate aftermath of large disasters. First, we went back to Haiti on a, uh, on a cholera mission. Shortly after getting back from Haiti, that massive earthquake tsunami hit Chile. We sent a team down there. We sent there. A, a training mission to the Thai-Burma border. Shortly after that, the flooding in Pakistan. After Pakistan, we went to Sudan. What we were doing brought all these veterans together in this spirit of service. And they could easily define progress. Uh, They could easily see that they saved a life, which progress uh, to a lot of veterans was a hard thing to define for many years serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. In a refugee camp with a ton of injuries, uh, when you're presented with somebody that is near the end of their life, if you're able to save that person, that is a tremendous experience and that's and that gives you a feeling of self-worth that you can carry with you for the rest of your life.
Many thanks to Jake Wood and William McNulty. If you want to find out more, go to our website, snapjudgment.org.